Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Be The Drop, a weekly podcast that investigates how to create genuine connection with your community. I'm Amelia Veal and by interviewing a wide range of people who have built passionate communities, I share the secrets to great communication. Today I am talking with Michael Williams, the director of the Wheeler Centre. Located in the heart of Melbourne, the Wheeler Centre is the world's first public institution dedicated to the discussion and practice of books, writing and ideas. Michael always knew he wanted to work in books, but took a while to figure out how to make that into a job. Michael talks about implementing a contract to conversation, having pride in your expertise and being part of something bigger than yourself. This is Michael's version of Be The Drop. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for joining me on our next episode of Be The Drop particularly here in your home centre, the Wheeler Centre. It's true. The only way anyone can catch me to do anything at all is to get me to do it at work. So it's, it's the perfect, uh, perfect arrangement. Place to be. Great. Now, I see you've brought in your item of significance, and that's something that connects you with your community. So can you take it away and explain what it is? I have brought a book, and thinking about an item of significance to me, it was always going to be a book one way or the other. It has always been a book in my life. I am the archetypal book nerd. Um, And it's funny because there are ways in which being a reader is a very solitary act, so you don't necessarily think of it as an act of community. And just as it's hard to work out how to make a profession or a vocation out of being a reader, it's equally hard to think about what it is to have a community around books. This book is not a great work of literature. It's not even a particularly great book. It's an old-fashioned... Uh, history of the world in pictures of the kind of reader's digesty type. Um, but it was a book that was given to me by my year 12 literature teacher. Um, and it was given to him by his year 12 literature teacher and wow. given to that teacher by his teacher. So uh, I am the third generation of person to have it handed on to me by a teacher who meant a lot to me. Um, and, you know, clearly... Um, Uh, I had a good relationship with him. And I guess for me in my life, um, it's always been not just books, but it's always been teachers. My mum's a teacher. I have aunts and uncles who are teachers, grandparents who are teachers. Um, And the importance of teaching, of education, of everything else has kind of underpinned my value system and the way I, I spend and devote my life. And so finding a kind of connection between teaching and a love of reading Um, kind of put me on my way, I think. Fabulous. And so the question begs then, how do you then hand it on? Oh, my. Yeah, well, I I tell that story to all my staff so that they can all kind of aspire to be like the chosen one. And then I I can be like the teacher in Dead Poets Society and I kind of get them all motivated and shout carpe diem and they all stand on their chairs and tell me they love me. I haven't given it to any of them yet because obviously it's a massive power play um, and so I'll wait. No, I'm not a teacher myself, so uh, it's weird. I can't quite think about how I hand it on, but I'll, I'll keep mulling over that question. Right, you hold that power for a bit. Yeah, well, what can I say? Don't give up power easily. It'd be a big mistake. <laughs> Great, well, we've got our first bit of advice already. Yeah, that's right, is just be power mad. Uh, <laughs> it's clearly the only thing. Okay, so you've talked about um, books and that being a a connection with your community. Can you expand then the community of the Wheeler Centre? 
and who who are they? Yeah, I mean, community is such a funny idea because on the one hand, it feels like a kind of monolithic idea, but the truth of it is, for all of us, we belong to many different communities. You know, that we self-select, we're intensely tribal in our way, but we don't define ourselves by just one of those tribes or just one of those kind of groups to which we belong. And so we might equally identify as being part of a community around, say, our kids and where they go to school or whatever. We might be part of the community that comes from our family. And then we might equally be part of a community that comes from the media we consume, the cultural institutions we engage with, the sporting teams we're interested in. We're kind of like this big, messy Venn diagram of communities uh, that we belong to. Before I worked at the Wheeler Centre, I uh, worked in community radio. I was a co-host in uh, Melbourne Melbourne radio station Triple R's breakfast team for a couple of years. And I loved that. But it was also an archetypal community organisation. It was one where uh, the subscribers would pay an annual subscriber fee for something they would get for free otherwise. But they paid because they self-identified as belonging to this community. And they paid because it provided something, a sense of identity that they valued, a uh, set of values, um, events, activities, and they wanted to be part of that. And for me, in being involved in the Wheeler Centre since the start, that notion of building a community, community around what we did was absolutely vital. Because we're a new cultural institution. I mean, we didn't exist and then we did. And existence wasn't something that came about because we were, government was responding to this massive outcry of people saying, please give us a centre for books, writing and ideas. It was one of those government creations where no one really exactly what it was. No one had exactly asked for it. And so we had to define ourselves, justify our existence, and then get people, get a community to self-identify as caring about our success or failure. Um, and so that idea about what it was to build a community was kind of mission number one. Mm, absolutely. And so now that you've built that community, do you find, you know, you've talked about this mis mix mash of, of different communities that define us. Have you found that with the Wheeler Centre? Are there any sort of prominent different groups, subsets of community within your community? I think the really important thing was that we were created as a literary organisation first and foremost. So the natural impulse is to think that that means a certain kind of bookish crowd. But our art form is public conversation. So that may be on whatever topic you can imagine. It might be architecture tonight, human rights tomorrow night, erotic fiction the night after. That breadth of subject matter is one of the things that makes what we do very exciting. Um, but it's also one of those things that means that it's not a homogenous group coming out every single night for what we do. It's um, uh, night on night, they're quite different, quite discrete audiences who come driven by an enthusiasm for the subject matter rather than a kind of generic love of hearing people talk on a stage. The other thing is the idea that we're devoted to public conversation, I think, is a contract. You know, conversation isn't someone broadcasting at you. It's not a TED talk or a, um, you know, sitting listening to lectures. The, if we say we're committed to conversation, that's a two-way street. It's a call and response thing. And so the, our contract with the people who come out to what we do is that we're hearing them as well and we're providing a space where the issues that engage them, that interest them, uh, we're hearing those and we're responding to those and there's an opportunity for them to be actively part of it. Um, I think community is an active concept rather than a passive one. So you don't build a community out of just talking at people. It's vitally important that that give and take becomes part of what you do.
Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, and what springs to mind is that you've got two ears and one mouth, so the equation should be the well, same. Well, you hope. I mean, if, <laughs> if you don't, that's fine. We don't judge. That's like if you have different numbers of mouths and ears, that's, that's great. Um, but you do somewhat ruin the useful metaphor. Yeah, that's right. That challenges it. But exactly. that. You know, I, I like that concept that you've talked. You've got a contract for conversation. So you're really embracing that it's a two-way and building this community is not just about what you're doing, but about what's, you know, what's happening within, you know, the people that are here and interacting and, and what they're saying. Yeah. So the centre opened in 2009, is that right? Uh, the, it was founded in 2009. We did our first event in early 2010 mm -hmm. um, and have been going since then. So we do about 250 public events a year, have done since 2010. And the vast majority of them are completely free. About 80% of them each year are free. And the ones we charge for, we cap at a very low, minimal price. I mean, the idea is that we should be able to be a space that people casually engage with at the centre of their life, their working life, their home life, uh, their kind of weekly routine. Mm. And so have you found that that momentum with the centre has grown exponentially as you've gone or was it something, you know, that sort of exploded at the beginning? What's sort of the growth? Of Look, the it's definitely grown, but um, it was clear to us from the outset that we were the right idea for the right time. There was a huge appetite for it. And, you know, the kind of communities people form on social media um, aren't an alternative to live and kind of in real life interaction, they're an indication of the appetite for it, I think. The two don't cancel each other out. There is a huge appetite. And once upon a time, we built our communities around having gathering points for conversations and moments when we might engage our neighbours in discussion of politics or science or religion or whatever. But those kind of traditional temples of, uh, of civil society uh, to varying degrees, I think, are a bit degraded or focused on other things or uh, not quite as central to community as they once were. And so there was this, you know, suddenly being a hall in the middle of a capital city that was a place where you could go and hear talks and meet other people who are interested in those topics and things was a really sticky idea. So we were a bit shocked, actually, by how quickly people understood what we were doing and embraced it and pushed us to do more and more. Um, that said, it's grown. It's easier than it was, whatever it is, six years ago, seven years ago now. Um, we have an incredibly engaged base. We announce an event and it books out pretty fast. I mean, it, it, we're now at the point where um, supply struggles to meet demand. And we're not going to grow. We're not going to do more events. We're not going to do, um, you know, the answer isn't to do 500 events in a year just because the 250 are booked out. We'll try and make the events that we do have as significant an impact as possible. So just as you're doing with your podcast, we recognise the value of that kind of digital publishing to reach an audience who can't come into the Melbourne CBD at 6.15 on a weekday. There's no reason why, if you're someone in Adelaide or in Broken Hill or in Brisbane or wherever, if you're interested in the guest we have, the topics we have, the nature of the internet now and the fact that our remit is about dissemination, not about creating a walled garden, means that the Wheeler Centre community can be as expansive as we want to make it. One example of that, we have a weekly e-news that goes out to um, about 45,000 people now. And we occasionally do a drive to encourage more people to sign up for that. And we did a competition where the prize was two tickets to Jaipur Literary Festival, if you signed up within the period or you referred it to someone else. 
and uh, someone won that competition and it was a long-standing subscriber, had been a subscriber for a few years and did a referral in the time. And we looked into it and he'd never come to an event. And we rang him up to say, well, you've won and have a conversation. And he was someone who lived in outer suburban Melbourne who obsessively listened to our podcasts and watched our videos and had used them as part of uh, learning English on moving to Melbourne and Australia. And he proudly self-identified as being part of the Wheeler Centre community, not because he came to our events, not because he sat like a traditional audience member in a traditional cultural institutions thing, but because he engaged in the conversations that we had. The conversations were the community and that was how people got involved. It's brilliant. I love it. And so you've talked about, you know, different speakers and different interests, but what is it that you think, is there a central thing that unites the passions within this community? Is it that conversation? You know, and for example, the person you've just spoken about, and he identified, you know, as a, as a Wheeler Centre community member, hadn't even actually been into the facility, but was obviously still very much engaged. So what's uniting him within what you're offering? We try to make sure that our events, we kind of vaguely think about them as having to satisfy three key criteria. They have to be smart, they have to be passionate, and they have to be entertaining. And the combination of those three things seems crucially important to me, is um, too often I think in Australia we have this kind of prevalent anti-intellectualism where the idea of smart feels like an exclusive category, and I don't think it is an exclusive category. I think that smartness comes in a range of different ways and people bring their own intelligence and curiosity to all manner of topics. Passion is important because it's not, the point of this isn't a kind of cold heart, we're not a think tank, we're not trying to um, affect policy change or whatever, we're people talking about things that they care about and that they believe matter and they have personal experience of or personal engagement with and that passion um, I think breeds a certain authenticity. And the entertainment part is important. It's not a dirty word. It's, you know, if you're coming out for a one-hour event at the Wheeler Centre or watching it on video or listening to the podcast, um, it's, you're not doing it because you're taking your medicine. You're not doing it. Um, Self-improvement might be part of why you want to do it, but if you're not enjoying it, if you're not engaged by what you're seeing, if it's not uh, entertaining, then what's the value of it? And so smart, passionate and entertaining helps it hit that sweet spot. And that's our kind of hip check to ourselves every time we go out. Does it satisfy those criteria? Oh, I love it. So that's the trifecta. The yeah, if you can manage it. Another Venn diagram. We're big yep. fans of Venn diagrams. <laughs> that's great. I, I really like that as, as an analogy of how you're making sure that people are engaged and interested. In, and the entertaining, so that's not elite, you know, being within a cultural centre, but we're entertaining. It's also, that's where media's at now. I mean, that's why people are listening to your podcasts, listening to podcasts, is people self-select. You know, they're no longer as willing to just uh, gather under a single masthead, to be a reader of just one publication. You know, you don't, instead of having the newspaper hit your front step in the morning the way you might have 10 years ago even, now you check Twitter or Facebook, you see the articles that are referred from 10, 20, 50 different publications, not just from here, but from around the world. You seek out the subject matters that you're interested in, the voices that are authorities that you trust, um, those, publications and individuals with whom you have a relationship. You know, you don't, you're less likely to 
sit at home on a set night of the week to watch linear broadcast TV the way that you used to. You know, the appointment television is almost entirely a thing of the past because instead we seek it out through streaming services, through on-demand services. We watch it at a time that suits us. And that means that um, I think a lot of the old ideas about community need to be reassessed, that uh, people People opt in and opt out. And, and it's why my emphasis is that kind of multitude of communities, is that I think, um, I think that's truer now than it's ever been. Mm. And I like, you know, that opt in and opt out, like often if you're watching television, you've got the, you know, the phone and you've got another device, so you're opting in and out at the same time. Like it's, it's really- Oh no, it's a sickness. Like there's, <laughs> this period when we're talking is the longest I've gone without looking at my phone. I would say, look, I'm gonna to say today, but if I'm gonna be honest, we're talking weeks. Yeah. Like this is bad form, bad form. I feel kind of itchy actually, just admitting that. <laughs> okay, well, you know, this 40,000, 45,000 people on, on your list and people that are coming to these events and they're selling out, what is it that you think is really motivating? You've got your trifecta, but what's then, that's, you know, you're delivering something that you know will work. What's getting them to then actually jump on board and book out so you've got things selling out quickly? Um, we do great work. No, uh, that's the glib answer. The, the more complicated answer is people want to belong and they want to feel like they're engaged with civil society. They want to feel like they're part of that conversation that's going on. 2016 has been a bastard of a year. And one of the recurring lessons of that year is the ways in which people don't feel like they're talking to one another and with one another. They're talking over one another, they're in their bubbles, they're not. Um, and I think there is this huge appetite, this huge desire for people to feel involved in, I'm gonna use the word contract again, a contract with something bigger than themselves, to be part of a society, to be heard, to be actually hearing from others, to be, um, to be allowing expertise to be on a pedestal when it should be. Let's not, um, you know, nothing depresses me more, and this is not intended as a partisan statement, but nothing depresses me more than our politicians saying, oh, well, a human rights expert would say that, I'm gonna disregard them completely, or a climate science expert would say that, I'm going to disregard it. So political climate aside, what has been the biggest challenge throughout, you know, from the, the Wheeler Centre from opening to where you are now in, in developing and building this community? It's very hard to make a living as a writer in Australia, for example. The, um, uh, 15 years ago, the Australian Council did a study to work out how many people made a living out of their writing of books alone, didn't supplement it with teaching or um, with journalism or with public speaking or whatever, could make a living off their books alone. Can I guess how many? No, was? I don't. It was eight oh. in Australia 15 <laughs> years ago. The number wouldn't have changed dramatically now. Average income for writers is dismally, dismally low. So one of our challenges is how do we make it easier to live and work as a writer in Australia by dint of our existence? And I think we do in lots of ways, but that's something we have to constantly be asking ourselves. How do we connect those writers with readers? How do we help make a, um, a relationship that's vitally important but commercially unhealthy more healthy? And so that's a big challenge and an ongoing one. No small challenge, but a very vital one. Yeah. 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 So you've talked about, you've got um, database mailing lists and emails. What are the platforms that you're really using? Is email a, a key communication platform? How are you communicating? Look, that weekly e-news is a big thing and we're very proud of how high our 
click-through rates are and our engagement with that base. They're not um, passively receiving our e-news. They appear to actively choose to get it and read it when it arrives in their inbox and book for the things that interest them. Uh, social media is huge for us and you know if you think that we've been going six, seven years, uh, in year one Twitter was not a thing at all. Now it's a significant way that we communicate with our base. Um, uh, Twitter and Facebook, Instagram to a lesser extent. Um, but the other thing about doing 250 events a year is some cultural institutions, festivals in particular, have singular moments where they engage with their audience, where they see their audience, their face-to-face. -face. might be once a year where they get a, an intensive period of that. Half a dozen times a week, any member of the Wheeler Centre team can walk down a stand in the back of a room and see a couple of hundred of our audience members there engaging with what we do. We talk to our audiences all the time and they talk to us and we hear them. And that grounding is a really exhilarating part of the work that we do here actually, is that we get that constant return of seeing the impact of what our kind of public programming. Mm, right, and that's why that, that conversation, which is central to what you're doing, is so incredibly valuable. And, yeah. and again, as you say, they're not going to just leave that event and only talk to the people that were in the event. It's a living, breathing thing. It's yeah. going to go further. Yeah, and, and hopefully it's a way to, it is a way to affect change. I mean, that I genuinely believe that what we do here can help shape the kind of society to which we belong. Mm. It's creating waterfalls. I like that. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for joining me today on Be The Drop. I'd like to conclude by asking you to share Michael's Be The Drop tip. So that's your top communication tip. Oh, Ooh, all right, good question. Um, look. And I would say this because I'm all about conversation one way or the other, but I think the exhilarating, I'll use that word again, part of what we do is the talking to people and finding a kind of authentic voice. I think so much in public life is people second guessing the way they should speak in a certain context and using inauthentic language that's not their own. Start with the low hanging fruit. Find the thing on which you are smart and passionate and entertaining. It might be Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it might be Collingwood Football Club, it might be any number of things, but you will have the thing on which you're an authority. It might be your own family, it might be um, the wonderful things that your five year old does. It, there's no need for imposter syndrome if you play to your strengths. So begin by working out the topics on which you're smart, passionate and entertaining and respect that you are an authority on that and you have a right to be heard. And the way you talk about that thing will be your authentic voice. And then finding ways to apply that to other things as a kind of uh, gradually growing subset of topics on which you talk, I think is not a bad way to go. Sensational. I love that. Great. Thank you for that little extra no, insight to your it's advice. fine. I try to apply it to myself. Good. All right. Thanks so much for your time, Michael. It's Absolute pleasure. pleasure. Nice to talk. Great. Thanks for listening to Be The Drop podcast. Be sure to subscribe in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Leave us a review or share with someone who is looking to improve their communication. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at B underscore the underscore drop or visit our website narrativemarketing.com.au and click on the podcast tab. If you or somebody you know embodies Be The Drop, 
email us via podcast at narrativemarketing.com.au. New episodes are released each Monday, so make sure you don't miss out by checking in every week.